I'm slowly recovering. Al-Anon, my name is Rick Jatuk. Good evening, everybody. And as they say up in Omaha, by the grace of God, the power of a program called the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, a fellowship called the Al-Anon Family Groups, and the loving but very firm guidance of a big book, Black Belt Al-Anon sponsor. It's not been necessary for me to plan any kind of death, yours or mine, since the 10th day of April, 1987, and for that, I am very, very grateful. (laughs) My hometown is Toronto, Ontario, Canada. My home group is the St. Clair Al-Anon Family Group. We meet in the church hall of Holy Rosary Catholic Church every Tuesday night at 8 o'clock, located on the St. Clair Avenue between Bathurst and Spadina. So if you ever find yourself in Toronto on a Tuesday night, just happen to be a little trip from Albuquerque, Toronto's a lot easier to spell than Albuquerque, by the way, so it's easier to find on the map. (laughs) Um, By all means, come in and and join us. I want to thank Norm for extending the invitation for me to come. And I really want to thank uh, Tom and Juanita for the fantastic hosting job they've done. There's all kinds of wacky stories that happen when you arrive at the airport and there's someone there to meet you. Um, The most embarrassing one happened, I'm afraid, I'm really sad to say, in Canada... And I was out at a conference in Vancouver, and I picked up my bag and looked around and really didn't quite recognize anybody, but there was a guy standing there with a blank piece of cardboard. (laughs) It was kind of like the flap from the top of a box that he had ripped off. (laughs) And I look around thinking, I wonder. So I went over to him, and I said, hi, my name's Rick. Might you be here to pick me up? So he looked at the backside of the cardboard and said, yes, I am. (laughs) (laughs) He had the name facing him. (laughs) So that didn't happen yesterday. There was just these these two smiling faces uh, that gave me a great hug and picked me up and brought me out for a a lovely bit of food, and it has been a great day. And and like Juanita said, it's not too often that you get the alcoholic to host you. But I can say this, you know, stick around Al-Anon long enough and there is vindication. (laughs) It will happen. So after I straightened him out with a few things, really, it was a quite a nice afternoon, and he, he takes directions very well. An outstanding recovering member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, Tom, it's a delight to, uh, to know you, actually. And it was a, a great day. And Dolores, it was great to see you, even though we haven't had a chance to connect. Uh, Dolores, I had an opportunity to work with her. Back in uh, 2005, I, I was the host committee chair for the AA, Al-Anon host committee chair for the AA International Conference, and so I had an opportunity to work with Dolores and, and her uh, colleague, Marcia, and that, that was really a great experience, and I really value that in, the, in kind of the context of all the service work I've had an opportunity to, to do, and people I've had to meet in Al-Anon, I, I really value the experience that we had uh, working on that, uh, working on that convention. And I'm certainly looking forward to going to Pittsburgh in, uh, in the summer. Booked my hotel room just last week. So uh, it's going to be a good, be a fun time. I have really enjoyed being at your assembly. I, I, I've been at Al-Anon a good long time, and, and I've never been to an assembly, an election assembly. I've been to one other one outside my area, but it's the first time I've ever been to an election assembly outside of my area. And, and I'd just like to tell you, you do it a hell of a lot better than we do. <laughs> it's quicker. It's more humane. It's, I, uh, you kind of cut to the chase right away. The last election assembly we had, it t- took two hours to elect the delegate. And we still had four to go, and then thank God we didn't elect the coordinators who would still be there. The term would be over. Anybody want to volunteer for a website? Okay, another 15 people. Okay, go through the ballots. But you guys didn't do that. It was really, really pretty cool. 
so I want to, I just want to say to all the people that, that were willing to stand for what is a very significant commitment in Al-Anon, your delegate, your alternate, and all the other officers, the, the, the coordinators, I really want to congratulate you for being willing to step forward in this fellowship and say, I will serve. So let's have an applause for all of them. Is that it? That is an important and a beautiful thing. And I've had an opportunity um, to do a number of things in service. And I, too, did DR and GR and coordinated this, that, and the other thing and uh, ended up as the area chair. And when I was finished my job as area chair, one of our trustees was at an assembly, and he tapped me on the shoulder and said, I think you'd make a good delegate. <laughs> really? Puffed me right up. <laughs> well, how do you think so? I'll be a good delegate. He must be right. Howdy's never wrong. <laughs> so I went home, and on Monday night, I called my sponsor at my regular Monday night call, and I said, hey, you're never going to guess what Howdy said. He's at the assembly on the weekend, and he's tapped me on the shoulder and said, I think you'd make a good delegate. You should consider standing. And there was that pregnant sponsor pause. <laughs> and I waited, and out it came, and she said, well, Rick, don't you think your delegate deserves, I mean, don't you think your area deserves a delegate who's practiced all 12 steps? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, what's your point? <laughs> no, I didn't say that. I said, Ooh. but she was right. For you see, I am embarrassed to tell you that after being involved in service for a good long time, there was a part of that that I, I, I misplaced spiritual recovery, working those 12 steps, coming to that spiritual awakening, working with others. I replace that with activity in service. I'm not saying you're doing that. I'm telling you that I did. And when it was all over, I felt hollow and empty instead of full and satisfied. And that's not because there's anything wrong with service. It's because there's something wrong with Ricky Duda. And what was he doing in there where I needed to have a title so that I felt like I belonged? I needed to have a job so that I could think for a while that, hey, I belong to this thing. And that's where I was. And that thing that my sponsor said to me was very, very powerful. It meant a lot, and she was totally right. So I am here to tell you that I have never been the delegate. <laughs> and I don't see doing that in, any, in, the, in the near future at all. But I have, had, I have had some great experiences. And I'll tell you, the experiences that I've had in service since I've done those 12 steps have been far greater. And whenever I finished one of the jobs... The last job I had, in our area, we do this thing where all the officers get together separately from anybody else three times a year. And so our area asks past chairs and past delegates to serve basically as a sponsor to the area officers. So we call them an advisor. So they asked me to be an advisor. And so after this three-year term of being an advisor, when it was finished, it was the first time I had finished a service job where I felt it's done and I'm not empty. Where can I go? I can go back to St. Clair Al-Anon because that's my home group. And because any title we get is, has a beginning, a middle, and an end, except this one title, Rick J. Al-Anon member. And that one does not have to have an end. And I like that. And that's the one thing we always get to go back to. So that's just my experience with all of that. In a, we have that tradition that says, you know, the only requirement for membership is that there be a problem of alcoholism in a relative or friend. I guess that means that if there's alcoholism but it's not a problem, you can't come. 
So if there's alcoholism but it's not bugging you, go 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 to a movie. Because this isn't gonna this isn't gonna work for you. But if it's a problem, you're in the right place. And in, and in Toronto, we do this thing, which we say qualify, based on what that tradition tells us, that, that we qualify. Uh, because as we all know, anybody can join AA, but you've got to know someone to get into al <laughs> <laughs> And I'm here to tell you that I've known five of them. Two by birth, father and a grandmother. But more germane to the story I need to share with you is that I have chosen three. Two of the three I chose, I met in Al-Anon. <laughs> so I just want to say this to you if you're here tonight in an Al-Anon. And, you know, we have had Al-Anon members come in and realize that they have a problem with alcohol somewhere along the way. Well, I'm here to expedite the process for you. So if you're here tonight and you're female and you're in Al-Anon and you think you have a problem with alcohol, ignore anything that AA shows you or ignore talking to any alcoholic and simply at the end of this meeting come up and say to me, do you find me attractive? (laughs) (laughs) And if the answer is yes, run like hell to AA because you're in the wrong place. (laughs) Go be a GSR. Infallible. And I see a few of you. <laughs> it is so great to be able to laugh. Do you remember when all we did was cry? We all remember that. We all remember when we felt like there was not another living soul on this planet that lived with what we lived with, that could get we were the shame was is like down to my toes that if anybody knew what was going on that would be the end i'd have to kill myself that would just be the end and here we have this god-given fellowship this program that can bring us to god that says let it all out and we can laugh and joke and giggle about all those things that we could not even utter before and we come to rooms like this, and we talk about this stuff, and people go like this. Yeah. They get that head nod. If I was to say things like this to my people at work, they'd go, what? If I was to say, I, I teach high school. So if I was to just meet my parents, and you know, the parents of the kids I teach, and say, hey, parents. Hi, my name's Mr. Jatuk, and you'll be happy to know I haven't had to plan any kind of death, yours or mine, since April 10th, 1987. They would not laugh. <laughs> but we laugh. We get it. We get that particular insanity that says, my life is awful. And, the, and it reaches a point, we reach this kind of insanity where killing you or killing me seems to be a rational substitute for living. We reach that point of insanity and we get that. Normal people don't do that. But we get it. And that's why I absolutely, totally love coming here with you people. Because everywhere we go, it's the same thing. We understand what that is about. I have a disease that's apart and separate from any alcoholism that any of those people that I have been with has. My disease is called alcoholism, the family disease. I don't drink, but I have alcoholism. I have something wrong with me 
that is not dependent on an alcoholic's condition, whether the alcoholic is drinking or sober, alive or dead, in my life or not, is irrelevant to the steady marching on of the disease that plays itself out in my life. And is it not the greatest fallacy that we bring? Is it not our greatest fantasy as members of Al-Anon that if only they will stop, I will be okay? And that is what it's all about. It's even a kind of our public information stuff. It's like kind of the Al-Anon con. Is alcohol a problem in your home? Yes, it is. Well, you just come here, little girl. <laughs> and we all come in here saying, tell me how to get them to stop. And it's not that we want them to stop because these people we love are killing themselves with alcohol. It's because our lives are a mess. And the only way that I can figure out in my limited intelligence when I'm forcing God out, the only thing that I can figure out in my way of looking at life is, you're the problem. And if you stop doing this, I'll be fine. Thank you very much. It's kind of like saying, I have a headache. Take a pill for me, please. And I'll be just fine. I cut my finger. Here's a Band-Aid for yours. And that's what that's like. That's what that's saying. But is that not the greatest, greatest fantasy that the Al-Anon member holds? And then there's a bottom for the Al-Anon when you kind of realize, or when they do stop, yes, we got exactly what we wanted, and life still isn't working right. Then what? We were giggling last night. Maybe it was at lunch. About Lois. What a phenomenal story Lois has. When you read Lois Remembers, look at what she did with Bill. I mean, he put her in a sidecar on a motorcycle. <laughs> and drove her all around the United States of America. He didn't even have enough money to put her up in a hotel, so they set up a tent in fields and left her there for days. And she stayed. And then he came back and she was happy. <laughs> and she repeated that again and again. Then his drinking got so bad that she went to work to support him. And then he got sober. And she threw a shoe. And here we are. How friggin' weenie is that? Bill had this great white, this experience seeing a white light. Our founder threw a shoe. Kind of embarrassed. <laughs> really. But take a look at what that is. Take a look at what, read, read Lois Remembers. It is an awesome book. I mean, awesome book. Our founder talking about it. She's an amazing human being, Lois. I love her story. But when you look at it from that side of here's her disease running rampant through this like bizarre alcoholic in her life, and she stayed. He got sober. She got a damn year old meetings, which meant was they're doing for you what I couldn't do. I wanted to do that for you. And they're doing it. Damn you. What about that? That the people we love get better. And we say, damn you. Because our life isn't getting any better. Because you see, I have a disease. And my disease is called alcoholism. The family disease. And it has nothing to do with the condition of the alcoholic or alcoholics in my life.
And that's a hard one to swallow. A hard one to swallow. But when we do it, those 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, which we practice ourselves, like it says in our tradition, in italics, practice that ourselves, become ours. Because those steps won't work for me if I'm here for you. If I'm here because you're doing something, those steps aren't going to work. I'm going to find a fellowship that's fun, that's friendly, that, you know, we can giggle, we can do all that stuff. I'm going to find that. And I can stay in that fellowship for a long time. And I did. But I didn't get better. Matter of fact, I got sicker, but I thought I was getting better. Because you read the words in the wall, and you really just need to have like a, a minute amount of intelligence to pick up what this program says, the words and the language and the vibe, and you can kind of spout it off. And I think, well, hey, I'm getting it. Well, really, no, because I want to step in front of a bus. Am I really getting it when I'm standing on a sidewalk and a bus is coming down and a thought pops in, one step, Rick, and it's over? Is that about an alcoholic? It's about me. And that's why this thing works, and that's why I'm so turned on to what this thing is. I was an odd, weird little kid. I was just frightened. You know, it wasn't really odd. I was doing what people do when alcoholism is present in a home. A disease comes in, a disease takes hold, and people do things that are diseased. Nobody's doing that on purpose. I don't believe for a second that my father ever woke up and said, I'm going to go out tonight, get rip-roaring drunk, come home, and tear my family's house apart. I don't believe he ever said that once in his life. But I do believe that on many, many occasions he said, I'm going to get my work done today, I'm going to have a few beers, and then just come home. But as we all know, those people we love who are alcoholic, they have the one and the phenomenon kicks in, and they can't stop. And it happens. And so we live in that disease, and I picked up the disease. I was affected by alcoholism, then I became inflicted with it. And regardless of the condition of the alcoholic in my life, the fact that I am inflicted with it, does not go away. It doesn't end when they stop. I used to hide in my closet when I was a little kid. I loved it. I would clear out all the clothes. I would clear everything out, and I'd put a little table in it, hang a light over the bar, bring in a little chair, bring in some paper and a pencil, and I'd rake this great big sign that said, Keep out! And I'd paste it on the outside of the closet door. And I'd go inside the closet and shut the door and wonder why nobody was coming in. Or I'd build this little enclosure. I was always kind of hiding myself in places to protect myself. That's what happens in disease. When you're threatened, you protect yourself. And as a kid, that's what I did. I didn't know that as a kid. I just did it. Kids just do it. Adults just do things. So that's what's going on. So I made up another little sign, hung it on the outside of the fort. Keep out! And I'd go inside that fort and wonder again why nobody would come in. And is that not a great metaphor for what I did as an adult? For you see, my eyes, my, my, my kind of part of me would say, yeah, I'd like, to, I'd like you to come in. But my eyes would say, get lost. There was a part of me that was terrified, terrified to have you come in. Yet my heart's yearning that the deepest level was for you to come in, please. But I was incapable of allowing you in as I grew up into an adult. My brother brought me to the doctor because I was doing all kinds of crazy things and nothing came back and it was just odd. But a beautiful thing happened in 1965. My mother joined Al-Anon. My mother remains to this. My mother is a 42-year member of Al-Anon. Beautiful thing. That, that deserves applause. That's right. 
It does. Take a look at who we are as Al-Anons. We say that. Somebody's in Al-Anon 42 years. Some goofballs in AA for 30 seconds. Yeah! And as Al-Anons, we do that. We completely and totally minimize what our recovery is and celebrate that. Of the, now, I'm not saying don't celebrate the alcoholic. Yeah! But let's celebrate us as well. Why not? There was a point where we made a decision for health over sickness. There was a place where we came, and those people that are here have stayed. And that is a beautiful thing, and that is something to really shout from the rooftop, that this works for us, the family members of alcoholics. I can live a happy, fulfilled, joyous life, regardless of the condition of the alcoholic in my life. Now, that is a message that we need to shout. And that's why we're in service, so that we can make this available. So when that person that's next door to us here that doesn't even know we're here makes his or her way into an Al-Anon meeting, he and she will find there is a way, my dear friend. You can live your life in a happy, joyous, fulfilled way, regardless of the condition of the alcoholism in that person you love. And matter, you know what? Continue to love them. And you're not bad because you do. Oh, what a great, great message that is. 1965, my mother went to the, came to Al-Anon, went to the International Convention in Alateen in, in Toronto. And Alateen was introduced there. Two years later, actually three years later, 1968, they needed places for Alateen members to stay. This is before requirements, right? You'd go into the Al-Anon meetings and say, hey, the Alateens are coming to town. We need some places to stay. Okay, I'll take a few. It's not like, uh, do you have a police check? Yes, can you sign your second mortgage over to us? You didn't have to do that then, but you know you do now. Hey, I'm not, no comment about that. <laughs> All I can say is that I come from the only area in North America that rejected the guidelines for a year. <laughs> now, that was a trip, I'll tell you that. But we have embraced them, but man, that was a year. That was a tough, tough year. Dolores will know that. That was a tough year for all of us there. But we, we, we worked that through. Anyhow, in 1968, that wasn't going on. So these Alateens walked into my front room, literally, from your country, Kalamazoo, Michigan. And a beautiful thing happened to me. This weird, wonky little kid that was hiding in the closet saying, keep out, was that I felt okay just being with a fellowship of those people that kind of got it. Now, they weren't words I used at the time. I was 11. It's like, okay. It was just cool. And I went to their Alateen conference and saw people up there talking and crying and people were saying hello and I liked it. And I started going to Alateen when I was 11 years old. I did. And I'm here to tell you that I stayed for 10 years until they kicked me out when I was 21. They said, Rick, you can't be bald and have a beard and be an Alateen. Now get out of here. I don't want to go. <laughs> but they kicked me out anyhow. Come on. Want to be the oldest living Alateen? I'll stay. I'll be good. <laughs> you have to go. So I became a sponsor. <laughs> I don't recommend that. Anyhow, I did. That's what I did. But when I was in Alateen, they told me some really great things. They said when I got to Alateen, they said this beautiful, beautiful thing. They said, Rick, your father is an alcoholic. He is not a bad man. Listen to that. Rick, your father has a disease. He is not a disgrace. Oh, thank you. Thank you for that information. I needed to know that. 
Because don't we, as the family members of alcoholics, demonize the people that have a disease called alcoholism? That we paint them 100% with that brush. But we don't do that to people that have other illnesses. Matter of fact, we kind of embrace them when they have other illnesses. But we tend to reject and ridicule and shame the people who have this disease called alcoholism. And that happened in my family. My mother, before she went to Al-Anon, she didn't have anybody to talk to. I was the oldest son. So at five years old, I was her confidant. At seven years old, I was her sex counselor. At nine, I was giving her advice. And that's what happens in a diseased home. My mother was not doing that on purpose. My mother was reacting to a disease in there. She was acting like all of us do. And in, in the active state of alcoholism, there's just horrific things that happen. And we all know what they are. And I'm not, we don't even need to talk about those things anymore. But we know that it happened. And it's disease. And disease comes in and we're affected by it. And then we're inflicted with it. And we take it on as our own. We really, really do. And in Alateen, they said, Rick, your father is an alcoholic. He is not a bad man. As a matter of fact, Rick... He is a beautiful man who loves you. And, he's, and I can see today that my father is an intelligent, humorous, loving human being who has a disease called alcoholism. And I don't need to take the alcoholism and obliterate everything else about, everything else about him. And that's a glorious thing that I, to, to know that and to be able to enact that in my life. Beautiful, beautiful stuff. So I loved my time in Alateen, and they really did kick me out when I was 21, and I went to an Al-Anon group and found this little harem of women, and, you know, they kind of embraced me, you know, as their token male, and, you know, graduating from Alateen, and, oh, isn't he so cute? Uh, <laughs> I, I just loved it, you know, I kind of owned them, and another guy would have the gall to come into our meeting, you know, and my, my hand would go out and say, welcome, I should say, get lost, find your own harem. Sick as a dog, just sick, sick, sick. But I did that. And I hung around in Al-Anon for five more years, and then, uh, then I, I stopped coming. And I stopped coming because I met somebody who is terrifically more exciting than anybody I'd met in Al-Anon. I'm here to, here to tell you. And that really is the story. The story really is about the choices that I make from my illness, not the things that happened in an active alcoholic environment. That stuff goes on. But the tragedy of alcoholism to family disease is what people like me continue to bring into his life on a daily basis. The choices that I continue to make on a daily basis. The things that I think on a daily basis. The revenge that I want on a daily basis. The murder I want to commit on a daily basis. The suicide that I want to commit on a daily basis. That's what the problem is for an Al-Anon like me. And I was in a fellowship, but I wasn't practicing a program. I had not embraced these 12 steps of recovery. I was just kind of showing up, enjoying the people, having a good time. But I had not embraced those 12 very specific actions that lead us to God. And I had never said to another human being, never said, will you be my sponsor? I never said it. I used people. And the thing about using someone as your sponsor is when it gets tough, you can leave because there's no commitment. And I need a commitment. And that's what I have now. Because with a commitment, you're going to go through the tough stuff. And it's when you go through this tough stuff that you get the gift. The singular promise, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. So, what does our literature say about this problem that we have? On March 12th, this is what it says in our ODET book. 
The longer I'm in Al-Anon, the more clearly I perceive that alcoholism is indeed a sickness, a compulsion, and obsession. But haven't I, too, been afflicted with a sick compulsion? Wasn't I determined to save the alcoholic to the same degree that he was addicted to alcohol? On May 4th in our ODAT, it says this. Many of my punishments are self-inflicted. Not by somebody else. Self-inflicted. In some way unfathomable to my human intelligence, my suffering could be the consequence of my own attitudes, actions, or neglects. My own. On July 27th, it says, Al-Anon's prime purpose is to help us deal with the problems that alcoholism has aggravated. My sponsor says it like this. Adding an alcoholic to a person like me is like sprinkling miracle Grow on my defects. Am I who I am because I am with an alcoholic? Or am I with an alcoholic because of who I am? Why did I choose three? Was that because of them? I don't think so. Bill wrote a book in 1939. He wrote it in 1938, published it in 1939, and this is what he said. He knew this all the way back. He said, our design for living is not a one-way street. It is as good for the wife as it is for the husband. It is as good for the family as it is for the alcoholic. They knew that in 1938, that this program, these 12 steps of recovery, were as good for the family members as they are for the person who has the disease called alcoholism. And all that we have to do is this one thing, if we want this gift. We need, because we come in, most of us come in on this side that says, you're the problem. And if you'll stop, I'll be okay. And we come into Al-Anon and we say, no, no, that's really not true. And somewhere along the way, if, God, if we allow God to pull us across, we get to this other side that says, oh, my God, the problem is not them. It's me. And when we get there, when we reach that point where we can accept that the problem is the reflection looking back at me in the mirror, not the reflection of that other person, that when I die, I see my life pass before my eyes. When I can reach that point where it's me, that, I, that my actions, thoughts, behaviors are the problem, we have available to us the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, which we practice ourselves, like our tradition says. That's what we practice. And we then have available to us this potent, powerful tool for bringing us to the power. Because I thought I was a power. And it tried the best in my power to make things work, and it didn't. A couple of weeks ago, the woman that I see, she's in Al-Anon, and she said, you know, I never quite realized how powerlessness and the kind of the fighting against powerlessness so long, for so long eroded my sense of confidence, my sense of self-esteem, my sense of well-being. And I never looked at it that way before. Because, you see, even if we're not admitting we're powerless, we are but if we think we're powerful and we continue to power up and fail, it erodes. And we power up and fail and it erodes some more. And we power up and, erode, and, and, and fail and erode. And we continue to power up, it continues to fail, and it continues to erode away at who we are till we reach that point where sometimes we can't even speak. We are so far down. And that happens to us. And is that them doing that to us? Or is that us doing that to us? Is that? 
And when it's us doing it to us, we can get better. Because you see, we are powerless. And the flip of the powerlessness is as soon as we admit we're powerless, we have access to the power. And that's the flip of it. But to get the access to, because I'm not the power, and I will never be the power. But there is a power. And I have access to it only when I admit that I don't have it. And as soon as I'm able to say that, over here, it's there for me to use. Done sequentially with a sponsor. That God can and will save our lives the very way it saves the lives of the alcoholic people that we love. It's as powerful for us as it is for them. And it is here in our meetings, in our literature, in this glorious fellowship that we call the on Family Groups. It is here for us. And that is the great news for us. There is a way out. And they don't have to stop drinking for us to get out. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. How does it show itself? I'm going to tell you a little bit about how it showed in me. You know, politely we say, you know, we have low sense of self-esteem. Well, you know, really, I, I don't know that that's what it is. I, or, you know, we're people pleasers. I never really wanted to please you ever in my life. Like, like you, you were irrelevant to me. The only thing that had any relevance was how you would perceive of me. And if I could, for a brief moment in time, believe that you were approving of what I was doing, that would be my higher power for an instant. It's kind of like a sick step two. <laughs> step two says, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. I believed that my entire life. If you approved of me, I wasn't so insane. If I had more money, I didn't feel so insane. If I had prestige or property or, p or position, position, how about that? I would not feel so insane. Because you see, I made each and every one of those things the power. And none of them are the power. That is my manifestation. That is my self-will running riot, trying to find a way to get power because I am rejecting this notion of powerlessness. And I am rejecting the fact that there is a power who will not barge into my life, but who is there with arms wide open when I finally say, I'm ready. And so I did all these kind of things in this sixth step too. And this approval sucker, you're looking for your approval everywhere, on and on. So I wasn't a people pleaser. I was an approval sucker. Try this with me. Try this with me. I want you all to make, listen to the sound, and I want you to make it. Let's hear that. One, two, three. Beautiful. There it is. You see? So when people say, you know, we're people pleasers, you're going to go, no, no, I'm a. And the thing about that is that it kind of works for a little while, but then it goes away. And that's what's scary. But there are other things, and let me tell you about a few of those in the, in the time. i got to tell you that the, the taper and Norm said something very dangerous to me. They said, we really don't have a timeline, so you just keep on going. I said, that's a very dangerous thing to say, because I am in Al-Anon and on and on and on. <laughs> so I do have this little white timer here to give you some comfort. It just really tells me how long overtime that I go. <laughs> Anyhow, I have, I have this thing like the number one in my hit parade, the number one behavior that I have is that I need to have people need me. 
And if you need me for a brief moment in time, I can feel like I belong. I can feel like I'm a part of this race. I can feel like I'm part of humanity. I feel like I feel like Bill when you read like Bill's story about him taking that drink, you know, and you hear our alcoholic friends talk about he took the drink and I, I could dance better and I could talk better and you know I wasn't as ugly. Well, hey, I got news for you. We were there and you were. <laughs> <laughs> And you couldn't dance before you drank, and you are worse after, baby. <laughs> the delusion of our alcoholic relatives, eh? Don't you think it'd be a great comedy skit, you know, to have the alcoholic telling his story and the Ellen right there? Oh, really? Let, let me tell you what it was really like, because I was there. Anyhow, I know we can't do that, but God, it would be fun. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> Anyhow, you know, like I, I grew up in that home where my mom, everybody needed me. See, everybody kind of came to me. And I liked that feeling. I like that feeling of when you come to me with a problem and I can help you fix it. It makes me feel worthwhile. Because you see, I really felt like a nothing. But if you need me, how can I be a nothing if you need me? And that's the way it was. And I didn't, I didn't articulate that at the time. It was just like, you, you just act, right? Like, you're, you're kind of like dumb. Just kind of walking through. Like, what are you doing? I'm doing the best I can do. And you think you're doing, you, what's all we do? You're diseased and you just do the best you can do. It's on reflection that you see all this goofball stuff. And that's what I did. And so here's the situation as it rose for me. I was in university. I was in my second year of university. I was studying music. I teach me. I'm a high school band director. And so I was studying music then, and I applied to go to a school in Western Canada. I got accepted to go to this school. The person that accepted me said, why don't you contact some of the other people that are going to be in your group and have a few rehearsals? <laughs> Great idea. So I contacted three others. It was a group of five. And then I contacted the, the fifth. The fi I was the one, but like the fourth person I needed to contact. And I'm here to tell you that the kind of attraction I have to alcoholics, I don't even have to see you. That it happened for me through the phone. And I had never set eyes on this woman before, but I phoned up to say, hey, you know, we're, we're, we're getting together to do a little rehearsal before we go out to this program. What do you think? And, and an hour later, we'd had this, like, lust fest on the phone. And she had been, been to all these great places, and she had played music with people that I wanted to play music with. And she was exciting, and she was energetic, and she was bubbly. And I was kind of like, <gasps> like, like I was breathing heavy on the other side of the phone. And it wasn't like one of those calls. <laughs> it was just kind of, and it was amazing. And, and so I, I kind of started doing some research. You know, I, kinda, I'm a, I like to know what's going on. A little bit of control going on. So I kind of found out some things about her. I found out she was very cute. Well, hey, that's good. And I found out that she was a terrific musician. I said, well, hey, that's good too. And I found out she was experienced. And I really like that because I wasn't, at least not with other people. <laughs> it was a lonely life, baby. Besides, nobody, like, people were reading the sign in the closet that said, keep out, so I had to do something in there. <laughs> it was safe. Anyhow. <gasps> Did he say that? <gasps> There's nothing better than the laughter of identification, really. It's just beautiful. <laughs> do you have closets, too? <laughs> so, anyhow. You know, it came, came, this, came this fateful day, you know, and we, we'd talk more and more on the phone. And I mean, it was glorious. And one day she called me, and I was working. I had a summer job. I was working in the liquor store. That was my summer job. That's the God's truth. And she was drunk. And she said, my boyfriend was supposed to come over. He didn't come over. Why don't you come over? Now, let's put this into perspective. I'd been in Alateen for 10 years. I was in a, hanging out in Al-Anon. And a little part of me went, bad. 
But then there was this other really sick part of me that went, yes, I can help you with that. I get it. It makes sense to me because in these in these these conversations that I have on the phone, she was telling me about all kinds of things that happened to her and what the people were doing to her. And little did I know, but at the time I'm going, oh, I, I can help you with that. I can help you. I can help you. Then she phoned me drunk. I go, baby, this is it. Budding, I got it. So it came time. We went out to out to Western Canada. You know, she comes into the airport and guys, I'll tell you, she was bouncing. She was this glistening black hair and she was tidy little package. Oh, she was gorgeous, gorgeous. And she had a suitcase and her trumpets and she was like, we watched her come up the air, you know, the terminal and like was like, oh, man. And she kind of stood right in front of me and my mother was there, my dad, and you know, she bent right over. And, you know, my mother had mild cardiac arrest on the spot. The eyes popped right out of my dad's head. And I was in Altine long enough to know I was about to have a spiritual experience. I'm here to tell you that. And we got on that plane, and it was awesome. And, and so I had a beer. Now, when, at, when an Al-Anon says they have a beer, they mean one. But she had one, then two, then three. She had five. And you can take it to the bank, she had five, because I've never met an Al-Anon that can't count. <laughs> or measure. <laughs> or mix colors. Let's see, what color is rye whiskey? Let's see if I put a little bit of... We all know how to do that. You know what I was good at? I was good at taking the cork from a champagne bottle and shaving it down so you could put it back in. Love it. Why are you doing that? We don't need to drink all that. Oh, well, yes, we do. <laughs> out it comes. That was alcoholic number three. Oh, good. there you go. We do all that kind of stuff. So anyway, we get out to the school, and you know, we, we start playing music together, and then we have. You know, I found out that it's a lot more fun with somebody else. I'm here to tell you that. Beautiful. But then there was something even better. And if you're an Al-Anon like me, you'll know what it is. So you play music, you get together, and then you have therapy. And she would tell me what was wrong, and I would tell her how to fix it. And I felt valuable, I felt whole, I felt wanted, I felt needed, I felt like I belonged. And a couple of weeks into this, this I used to call it a relationship. My dear friend Mildred, she said, no, Rick, it was a parasitic entanglement. <laughs> that just has quite a ring to it, eh? Well, how you doing, darling? Would you like to have a parasitic entanglement? <laughs> I met another guy one time. He said it was like two ticks without a dog. <laughs> oh, we do get ourselves into this stuff. So anyhow, whatever you want to call it, that's what it was. And so, so we're sitting in, the, in this common room in the school, and she says to me, she says, you know, Rick, I've been seeing a therapist for a long time, but I don't need to see that therapist anymore because now I have you. Oh, take that in. Let's hear that together. Yeah. Fill up on that one. Who needs a higher power? That's my power. That's all I need. Really? Oh, it was glorious. And that, that lasted for the whole summer. It really did. And I get home and people are saying, Rick, what are you doing with this woman? Now, was I saying we have a lot in common? We're making beautiful music together. Did I say any of that stuff? No, I didn't. What I said was, deep down inside, there's a beautiful person, and I'm going to help bring her out. She was a project. She was. Anybody had a project? Look at that. Eh? 
well, you'd be great if it wasn't for this, 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 and this, and this. And I'll just change that for you, and then you'll be fine. <laughs> we'll be happy together, but I don't want to change. That doesn't matter. Because you're going to, because this is the way I want you to be. So that I'll be okay. What about me? Who cares? All that matters is what I want. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. So that whole thing kind of like, I got bored. It's like a dog that catches a car. What do you do with it when you get it? Well, I'll tell you what you do. You keep it and you go look for another one. And it doesn't have to be another woman. It can be something else because you get needed in a lot of places. So I finished, high, I finished university. I finished teacher's college. I found myself sitting in front of a principal in a, a, of a downtown high, a high school in downtown Toronto. And he said these words to me. He said, Rick, there are a lot of very needy students in this school. Oh, man. Brother, I'm the man for you. <laughs> you want me. And he said, you know, people say these kids really can't do a lot. And I go, oh, really? Because, man, I'm an Al-Anon that loves a project. I love a I'll show you project. You say it can't be done? Just watch me. Just you watch. So three, three years later, these kids that couldn't play a note, we played Fiddler on the Roof the whole show. The whole thing. And after the final performance, the principal called me up out of the pit where I was conducting the orchestra and hugged me in front of the whole audience. And kind of pushed me back, but he didn't let go. And he said, you know, Rick, I've made a lot of decisions since I've been the principal of this school. But the best decision I ever made was to hire you. <laughs> approval. That's not people pleasing. That's approval sucking. And that was beautiful. That lasted a little while, too. But you see, the thing is, when we're seeking that kind of power, it comes and it goes. The power never goes. But my power vanishes instantly. But when I'm not accepting the power, I will follow what I believe is the answer to the gates of insanity and death. And I am not drinking. But I have a disease, and it is called alcoholism, the family disease. And it is my behaviors, my actions, my thoughts, my neglects that bring me to my bottom. That's what it is for us. Had an anger problem. Anybody here in Al-Anon have an anger problem? Kind of one of our deals. I loved it. I liked being angry. It was like a rush. It's, it's, almost like, it's, like a, it, it's, it's almost like a drug when you truly just let it go. And I used to think that appropriate anger was like, like just throwing things all over the place. It felt good. It felt powerful. And there's that word again, powerful. I felt powerful, but I wasn't. It was a symptom of my terror, but I didn't know that. And when I came back to Alan, oh, I, that woman, the, the trumpet player, I married her. She divorced me, the ingrate, eh? After all I did for you, I made you everything you are, and you're leaving. <laughs> so that's when I came back to Alan, because I left Alan on. Then I came back. So that's why my new date, in, 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 in alcoholic terms, I went out and drank for three years. I wasn't drinking, but I was, doing, I was involved in my disease fully and totally for that period of time. And so I start my Alan on birthday is the 10th day of April, 1987, not 1968. Because I was in, I left, and I came back, and I've been in continuous since that day, and I'm really happy to tell you, really happy to say that to you. But when I came back, I started to have these anger things, and it started to happen in my Al-Anon meetings. So I'd be talking to somebody, and they'd be telling, so you know the way we talk at Al-Anon, and I'm kind of looking, and you know, my, my, my head's nodding up and down, and in my head, I'm thinking, I'd like to smack you right in the mouth. 
I'd really like to punch you right in the nose. And, and, and it was happening all the time. And so in my way of thinking at the time was, because you see, I was rejecting the power. The only power I knew was the one that I was kind of trying to manifest, and it wasn't working. And so I'm thinking, well, it's them. <laughs> There's some karma that they have that they're putting out that I'm doing that, so I just won't talk to them anymore. But it ended up that it was everybody that that was happening to. A kid walked down the, down the hallway in the school one time, touched my tie, and before I knew what I was doing, I had him pressed into a locker with my fist in his face. Put him down, walked away, said, there's something going on. And I was in my kitchen and I was getting a glass of water and I had this all compelling feeling to just throw the glass. Or I was making a fried egg and I broke it and I started smashing the pan on the stove. I was in my Al-Anon meeting. I was the group representative. I was in a very large meeting. There was about 80 or 85 of us. And I was sat in the back, the control position. The back corner, you can see everybody, but nobody can see you. Remember that important. Hello, all you those there in the back corner. <laughs> and so I was sharing, in, in, I was just sharing a lot of, a lot of garbage, really, but, but I, I was sharing about in, in soft, warm, velvet tones about my spiritual awakening and how, you know, my, my God was my, my, my closest friend. And two people beside me started playing with each other's shoelaces. And a demon came out of me in my Al-Anon meeting. And I screamed blue bloody murder at these two people and then went back to speaking in soft, dulcet tones about my spiritual awakening. And while I did that, everybody in the room, you can kind of hear this collective gasp from all the members saying, oh, our GR is killing two people at the back of the room. <laughs> and at that moment, there wasn't a person in that room that wanted what I had. I'll tell you that. And so after the meeting, nobody would talk to me. Until finally, one person said, Rick, you've got to do something about that anger. And so I go home and I read the ODAT, you know, count to 10. I tell you, I count to 10. I want to kill you even more. All right. Like that just this wasn't working. And so keep an open mind. But somebody said, I think you might need some extra help. But put this in perspective, too. I was attending meetings. I was in fellowship, but I was not doing a program. I did not have a sponsor. I was just kind of manifesting all this in myself. See, the golden moment, the beginning, the seminal moment in the history of who we are is when Bill met Bob. When one met another, it happened. And until that happened, like if they hadn't done that, we wouldn't be here. But they met, and here we are in, in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Right, Because that happened in Akron, Ohio. One met another. And until I was able to say to somebody, will you be my sponsor, this stuff was not available to me. And I had not said that. And so I was trying to do this on my own. And so by definition, I was sponsored by an idiot, me. <laughs> it wasn't working. And the best that I could come up with was that. But all kinds of other things started to happen. I have all these thoughts and these feelings. That's when I wanted to step in front of the bus. I wanted to, I wanted to stick a knife in myself. Those things just started to come into, my, into, into me. And so I went to therapy. I did. And every time I walked in there, I walked in there with that third step prayer. And as soon as it was over, I went to my Allen meeting. Because the therapy helped me uncover. If I had had the sponsor, I may not have needed that, but this is my story. I'm not telling you to do what I do. I'm just telling you what I did. And that's the way that worked for me. And, and what I found in all of that was that underneath all that anger, underneath all that rage was terror, abject terror of you and of life. What I have come to discover is that anger and rage have two sides, homicide and suicide. It's the same thing. And we understand what it is. We understand that particular insanity that says, my life will be better if I can stick this in you. My life will be better if I can drown you in that tub. My knife will be better if I can stick an icicle in your belly, and then it'll melt and nobody knows how I've got it. Right? We thought, I've heard those stories in Al-Anon. I'm not making that up. I come here to hear that. Good idea. 
where were you before? I said, <laughs> we've all heard them, right? And we laugh because we understand what that is. But the good news is that there is a way out because you see, that's all me doing. I'm trying to be the power. I am not the power. And when I admit I am powerless, I have access to the power. And it is here for us all the time. But I have to see how I was powerless. And that's the way it was. And I became a victim. And it wasn't so much what happened to me. I loved being a victim. Being a victim is sweet. Because when you're a victim, you're never wrong. Ever. The victim is always the center of attention. The victim is always right. The victim is the one that gets all the pity. Everybody else is demonized. But the victim is pure. Perfect. Oh. I love it. Just kind of wallow around in that stuff. Kind of like a whining victim. You know, the definition of whining, anger escaping through a very small hole. And there I was. 35 years old, blaming my whole life on the fact that my father drank too much beer. Until finally someone said, Rick, don't you think it's time you grew up and started taking responsibility for yourself? And the answer is yes. I love being a martyr, doing more than humanly possible, just so you'd look at me and think, wow, he's great. Really, when you're looking at me thinking I'm a goof. But in my perception of the way you looked at me, I thought you thought I was great. And that's all that mattered in the world of power I had built that was falling down around me like a house of cards. Loved it. And on and on and on. Fill in the blanks for you. What is it? Why are you here on a Saturday night after a really long day listening to a blabbermouth from Toronto? Honestly, what do you want? Well, I'll tell you what I want. I want that power. And you people have it. And I feel it in you. You tell me how you get it. You share me how you do it. You share with me how you've gotten it. I share with you what I'm doing. We, and it, it, it comes because the power is the solution. And we all know that. Beautiful stuff. And so finally I reached that point. I reached that blessed moment. It was at the end of the third alcoholic. And it was like there was just no question that I was the one doing this to me. And God had finally allowed me to cross to the other side. And I finally said to another human being, will you be my sponsor? I love what you've got, and I want it. And I've been hanging around here long enough, not doing a deal. And you're doing the deal, and I want it. And when I finally reached that point, you know, it's kind of like I put made out this list of what I want my sponsor to be. And so our literature says, you know, men sponsor men and women sponsor women. Well, look around. <laughs> All right, Mexico, you knew Mexico was no different from Toronto or from anywhere else. You kind of look around. There are not a lot of men here. There aren't a lot of men. And so I, but anyhow, I put that on my list and I put all kinds of other things on my list and I looked around, couldn't find anybody. But this is what I did different. I have a dear friend at home. I mentioned her once before. I'll mention her again. Her name is Mildred. And we get together every week. We do this little prayer thing. And, and, and so I started to say, I just started to ask for a sponsor, the right sponsor to come into my life. And so this person did come into my life, and it was a woman. And she came to talk at our conference in Toronto a number of years back. And uh, we went out on a Friday night and had a nice little connection. And Saturday she talked. And when, after she talked, she came to get me and said, hey, let's go out and get some more ice cream. It was fun last night. So as we're walking along the main street in downtown Toronto, she says this beautiful thing to me. She says, tell me about you. 
And I said, well, I tried to chop my wife's head off with an axe on a camping trip. And she laughed. And we bonded. See, she had just finished telling us the story about trying to drown her husband in a bathtub. And I got it. See, because on my list of, of qualifications for sponsor, I left off potential murderer. I just, I just forgot that one. But what I did was I just prayed and said, God, I need a sponsor. I really, really do. And this person came into my life. And Mildred said to me a few days later, have you found a sponsor? And I said, no, I, no, I haven't. She said, yes, you have. And I said, it's too crazy. She said, I know it's crazy, but there's a lot of crazy things in this life. So I wrote a letter to this person who lives in your country. 1,800 kilometers away, my sponsor lives for me. And I wrote a letter, and this is what I said in, in capsulized form. I, I said, I absolutely love meeting you. I love the program you've got. I am sick to death of doing this by myself. And if you will be my sponsor, I will do absolutely anything you ask me to do. And I sent the letter down. And I meant it. Absolutely anything you will ask me to do. But a week and a half later, I got a package in the mail. And I said, well, you know, she's long-winded. Maybe she's long-writing, too. I don't know. <laughs> but I opened it up. And there was this beautiful letter, you know, she said, you know, enjoyed meeting you too, and la-da-da-da-da, and, you know, and she said, I got your request for sponsorship, and she said, I've been praying about it. And then she said this gorgeous thing in the letter. She said, and I spoke to my husband about it. And her husband said, is it a reasonable Al-Anon request? And she said, yes, it is. And he said, then what's the problem? And so in the letter, she said, welcome to the family, the Al-Anon family groups. And I sat at my desk and cried. Because you see, my dear friends, I came into this fellowship when I was 11. I left Alateen when I was 21. I hung around in Al-Anon for another five years. I described what I did when I was out of Al-Anon. I came back and was back for five or six. And finally, finally, I reached that point, that blessed point where I was willing to admit my powerlessness and say to somebody else, help me out. Help me out. And she said yes. It was the last nice thing she said for a year. <laughs> she said, you are one sick puppy. <laughs> I took that as a compliment to show you how sick I am. Oh, really? And she called me a flaming Al-Anon. Oh, good. I have a title now. <laughs> whacked. Just totally whacked. Really. But she said, I want you to, she said, I want you to start back at step one. And she said, this is how I want you to do it. And I said, thank God. Thank God. I got, there's some direction. To, there's something to do. I loved it. She said, I want you to buy every book that Al-Anon has. I said, that's a lot of books. She said, you're working. So I bought every book that we've got. And then she said, keep an open mind. I know we're at an Al-Anon assembly. Hold on to your seat. She said, I want you to read the big book. <gasps> I said with my smart-ass mouth, the big book is not conference-approved literature. A sponsor pause. And she says, okay, dummy, how are you going to practice the 12 steps of AA yourself unless you use the book called AA? A. <laughs> so I got the book. That's simple. Now, I use that as a part of my total recovery. And in our, in our, in our service manual, it says we can do that. It says we can share about some outside literature that we use for our own personal recovery. So this is what I'm doing. I'm also covering my ass. <laughs> but, that, 
All right, because I'm at an Al-Anon assembly. So find it in the book. Okay, find it in there. Also, if you happen to have the book, the Al-Anon Family Group's The Classic Edition, if you have that hardcover book, read Tradition 5. And in that book it says, we found it helpful to read the basic text, Alcoholics Anonymous. It says that in our literature. <gasps> oh, no. So anyway, I've used it, and I'm alive. I'm okay. But I'm not dissing our Al-Anon literature. Our Al-Anon literature is awesome. Because what that is is the shared experience of the family members of working those 12 steps of AA themselves in our lives. And when I started to read that, my sponsor said, don't just read the book from cover to cover. Read one topic in each book. So open up your ODAT, look in the back, and read all the things about step one and close the book. Give it a try. Open up the courage to change. Look in the back. Read everything about step one and close the book. Open up the Al-Anon 12 and 12, read step one, and close the book. Open up how Alan, how Alan, like the past recovery book, read step one, and close the book. Open up how Al-Anon works, read step one, and close the book, and something will happen. Because there's a thread. There's this whole notion of the shared experience of the Al-Anon member talking about being powerless over alcohol when we don't drink. And I started to get it. I started to get this idea that alcoholism is a disease, and as such, I've been affected by it. I'm afflicted with it, like it says in ODAT, and it means that I have to take responsibility for my own recovery if I'm going to get better. And that when I admit I'm powerless, I have access to the power. It started to happen. And so I answered the questions in the past to recovery. You know those questions at the back? I answered them in longhand, read the answers to my sponsor, and then she said this gorgeous thing to me. She said, congratulations, Rick. You've done step one to the best of your ability. Now listen to this. Move on. Oh, listen to that again. Move on. Don't be like a hamster on a wheel with endless activity. And at the end of the day, in the same place. Move forward. Do the same with two. Read everything about two in all of our books. Answer those questions. Tell them to your sponsor. Move on. Do four. Do the inventory. Whatever form you want to do. I did, one, I did that the form the way my sponsor told me to do it. I got in an airplane and flew to our house and I did my inventory. 110 pages of it. <gasps> I'd been around here long enough to know that if I was going to do this deal, I was going to do it right. I'm a little bit of a perfectionist. <laughs> now, I didn't do it perfectly, but I can tell you it was as complete as I could possibly do it. And it took two days to read it to her. But there were some beautiful things that happened in the context of doing that fifth step. One is it was observable. And let me say that again. It was observable. Because the steps are actions, and actions can be seen. Actions are not things that we just kind of mull around in our head and say we've done it. Actions are observable. And if you had a camera, you could take it. There, Rick, there's your sponsor, and they're doing their step five. And we started it off. We knelt down. We said a prayer together. We sat at our kitchen, and I started going through this stuff. And at one point, I said, I said some things about the horror of what it was like growing up in alcoholism. And it was around in a, of a sexual nature. And I, w I had never even, I wouldn't even let it into my mind until I did the fourth step. Never mind utter it to another human being. But God's grace is there when you start to work these steps sequentially with a sponsor. And it came, it was like time to say it. And I said it. And this is what my blessed sponsor did to me. She simply got up, hugged me and said, Rick, I am so sorry that that happened. And that's all I needed. All I needed was validation from a kind loving Al-Anon member to say, you know what, that was horrific. And you know what, my dear friends, some of what went on in alcoholism was horrific.
We don't need to minimize that or maximize it. We just need to accept it. It was. Now, let's move on. Because we don't have to live there anymore. And I had lived there too long. And when I finished the fifth step, we went out into her backyard and we burnt it and said a prayer with each page. And when I got back in, I, I sat down at her kitchen table again and I said, there is not a thing that I have not told you. And you know what she said back to me? She said, Rick, I love you more because I know you better. Oh, my God. My deepest fear of all was that if you knew me, you would loathe me. You would banish me from your existence forever. I would be isolated forever if you knew me. And so I needed to become a chameleon. I needed to adopt myself to whoever I thought you wanted me to be so that I could believe that I fit in and I never fit. And what I found out was that in the, when I was doing this, this step and I revealed myself totally and honestly to another human being in the presence of God, I found what I had been looking for. I always wanted to get there but I was walking that way. I wanted to go to New York, but I was walking towards Los Angeles. I could never figure out how come I'm not getting to New York. And what the steps do is they say, Rick, uh, do this. I don't want to do this. Tough. Just do it. And it started to grab you. The steps grab you and they kind of swing you in the right direction. And before you know it, you're going to New York. And I want to go to New York. You're going in the direction you want to go, and results are starting to happen. I'm starting to feel this connection with people. I'm, starting to, I'm not feeling so damn weird. I can look at my picture in a mirror, and I don't recoil from my own image. Somebody points a camera at me, and I don't run away from the camera. I teach high school, and you take a look at the six years of, first six years of my career. In the high school yearbook, there's no picture for me because I was afraid to have my picture taken because who I was was not good enough. Two university degrees, and I would not have my picture taken. This stuff is not about intelligence. This operates in some totally different level. I'm delighted to say to you today that my picture is in the yearbook. <laughs> and it's a good one. They even gave me copies and I gave some to people. They go, good picture, I know. How about that? <laughs> now, I didn't work on that direct. That's an amazing thing about these steps. We don't work on self-esteem directly. We just start to do esteemable things. We start to do things that because we're accepting a power that are successful. And you start to do this step, these steps sequentially with a sponsor, we start to experience success. And all of a sudden, that feeling of worthlessness begins to disappear. Those things that we would, would not utter to another human being are the very things now that allow us communion with other people. They're the very things that allow us to connect in ways that I always wanted to connect. Instead of saying, keep out, it's like, come on in, and then we can connect. That's the intimacy and if you're talking about, and if you're looking at a sexual relationship, intimacy happens first. Sex happens second. And it took me a long time in my life to discover that. It's a beautiful thing. And I'd love to talk about all the steps, and I'm not going to. But I've done them all. I've done the amends, and I'm working them through, and I, we're doing it. And, and based on something that, that you know, you're, you're, you're lucky to have people like Tom and Juanita in your area and the things that I heard them do, I'm going to kind of walk, walk them through with my sponsor again starting in January. And I'm looking forward to that. A sponsor doesn't have to live close by. A sponsor is not about gender nor about geography. First person I told that my sponsor lived 1,800 kilometers away, she said, well, how do you do that? I said, well, I have a commitment to call every Monday night. And she's there every Monday night. And I said, we see each other three times a year. And this woman got this funny look in her face, and she said, you know, my sponsor lives around the corner. 
I don't talk to her once a week. And I'll tell you, if you have a sponsor in your own group, this is based on my experience, sometimes it's not as good as when you don't, they're not in your group because when they're at the group, you just kind of have this little chat and then you go away. But when you have a committed time, and that's what it is with my sponsor, every Monday night at 10 Eastern, 9 Central, I call. <laughs> and she's there. And I, the four guys that I sponsor, they all have a time. Peter calls at 6, Fred calls at 8, Patrick calls at 9, Greg calls Tuesday at 7. And they call. Hey, how you doing, Greg? Good to see you. Pat, how you doing? It's beautiful because they've made a commitment, and I've made a commitment back. And that's what the sponsorship is really about. And we do those steps sequentially with each other. I'm almost done. I just want to tell you a story. Uh, you know, I, 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 a small thing about relationships. You know, I, I have had trouble with relationships, as you can tell. Uh, I'm here to tell you that I'm, I'm in a seven, seven years into a relationship with a beautiful Al-Anon woman. And uh, we're just kind of on the edge of trying to figure this out, how we can kind of bring this thing together. And she's got her sponsor, and I got mine, and we're slowly working that out. So say some prayers for us as we kind of get into the nitty-gritty of, you know, it's easy to get together when you're 20 and you got nothing. Right? But when you're kind of in your, in your early and mid-50s, there's some things. And it's just not so easy. So we're kind of working out those nitty-gritty things. We love each other dearly, but then there's all this other stuff. So say a prayer for us, because that's a challenge at this instant in my life. But I want to end by telling you a story about my dad, a couple of things about my father, uh, the, the prime alcoholic in my life. You know, there's been lots, but he's the, the, still the one there. And um, my dad, when I was 18 years old, my dad got sober. And that was a great thing. And he, he stayed sober for 24 years. And then one Easter Monday, I went up to visit him, and I watched him drink after 24 years of sobriety. And that slayed me. And I went back home, and I called my sponsor, and I said, oh, how does this happen? And she said, Rick, remember, that alcoholism is cunning, powerful, baffling, and very, very patient. And your father is an alcoholic. He is not a bad man. Your father has a disease. He is not a disgrace. He is a loving, kind, generous, humorous, intellectual man who has a disease called alcoholism. And you have a program and you have a fellowship. And it is up to you, Rick, to be the very best son you can be to your father. And that was hard because you see, when our loved ones are in recovery, it's a lot better, easier. That's, I'll take that over drinking any day. Any day, you're easier to talk to. And we, we developed a beautiful relationship, my dad and I. And one of the things that happened in that relationship was that we started to bond. And I, one of my deals was I wanted to have this adult relationship with my father. Instead of always relating to my dad as a boy, I wanted to relate to my father as a man. And it wasn't anything he was doing to me. It was what I was doing in the relationship. So my sponsor said to me, why don't you start to do some things with your dad? So I suggested that we kind of do a, like a little canoe trip a lot of water where I live, and so he loved that idea, and so he, my dad and I went out for a two-day, one-night canoe trip, and it was delightful. I kind of related with my dad on that level, sitting around the campfire, and we said, that was fun, so, you know, not long later, we, we did another one, a couple of, three days and two nights, and we really enjoying it, but, you know, being the Al-Anon and alcoholics that we are, you know, it's like, if one's good, two's great, well, like, 15 is the best, <laughs> and so we said, well, let's do a really big one, and so we planned this canoe trip in northwest Canada, that was so far north, the sun didn't set. And it was this raging whitewater river. It took four airplanes to get there. The last one landed us on the side, like on a, on a, like a, a stone's like soft shoulder of a river, dropped off all the stuff and said, 15 days that way. 
See you later, Bunky. And away we went. Now, we did have a guide. Thank God. We had at least a modicum of intelligence. We weren't doing this by ourselves. We're sick, but we're not totally stupid. And, and so there was myself, my dad, the guide, and one other fellow. So there were two canoes, four people. Now, this is, I mean, this is like a, like a class four or five whitewater. I mean, it's huge. You had to put skirts over the canoe. It was like a two-man kayak. Right? And then you have to learn how to work on this, on this white water. And my dad and I had done a lot of still water canoeing, but not a lot of white water. So the guide was teaching us how to do things. And one of the things that they got to teach you how to do is get out of the canoe. Right? Because canoes are great, but they don't have brakes. And so you need, to have, you need to know how to stop the canoe and get out. And so you do this thing called an eddy turn. And what that is, is you do a few the set of motions and the canoe flips right around. And you find these places where in fast water it goes forward, but there are places where it comes backwards. And so you kind of slide into the eddy and the canoe just kind of sits there. And so the guy taught us how to do this, and you know, Dad's in the back, I'm in the front, and we figure this out, and we get in, and he said, wow, way to go, Dad, Rick, fabulous. We did it. And the next day, you know, we're practicing the eddy turn, and Dad's, you know, shouting the directions, and Dad, we got it. That's fantastic. Well, day three, Dad's shouting the directions, and I get the sentment. I'll say that word again. The sentment. S-E-N-T, mint. And I think, Dad, I know how to do it. Did I say that? No. The next day, we stopped to do the editor, and then I got the resentment because he tells me how to do it, and I get resented because I know how to do it. Did I say, Dad, I know how to do it? Nah. I just got a little pissed. And the next day, and the next day, and the next day, until finally it started to bubble and boil, and by about midway through the trip, Dad was telling me how to make, we were stopping for lunch. He said, Rick, this is how to make the eddy turn. I screamed at my top of my lungs. I know how to make a goddamn eddy turn. And I turned around to look at him, and at that instant in time, he decided to say, I love you. What? What? You insane goofball. What? And that was like an octopus on my face, and that was it. That was it. The trip was over. I had my, there was no, like, we're out in this wilderness. There was no phones. There was nobody to talk to. I had my old that stupid book. Nothing about Eddie Turns. Put Eddie Turns in the old app. Nothing in there. And it was like, over. The trip was like done for me. So I finally, I get back. My sponsor says, how was the trip? You want to hear about the trip? <laughs> and there was that pause. And I go into this tirade about him and everything he did and everything he was doing and, and on and on. And finally, I stop for a breath and she jumps in and says, what was good about it? And there was dead silence. And she said, you mean to tell me that you just spent two weeks plus in the most beautiful country you can imagine and there was not one good thing? No. <laughs> Assignment. <laughs> you will write down as many good things as you can think of and tell me next week. Okay, I'll do that. So over the week, I thought about them and before my Monday night call, I wrote down seven things. So I called up, you know, I'd done my assignment. Hey, I got it. Here it is. Here are the seven things. And I was expecting her to say, very good, let's move on. Nah. She said, very good. Now you're going to write him a letter. What? Do I have to mail it? <laughs> she said, yes, you do. And she said, Rick, this is a love letter. This is a letter to your father, letting him know how much you value the experience that you and he had together. This is what helps us take the octopus off the face to get the focus off them and put it in the air. And so I wrote the letter. I said, Dear Dad, I want to thank you for the trip down to Nahani. It's an experience I'll never forget. I want to thank you for helping me out a bit with the money. It was expensive. I really needed a bit of help. I thanked Dad. 
Dad, I want to tell you how proud I am of you that you knew more about the plant life, about the geography, about the animal life than the guide. My dad was teaching the guide about stuff, and I was proud of him. I had lost that in the midst of my anger. I said, Dad, I hope when I'm your age, I have the physical strength to do that because he was sober at the time. Then I said, Dad, I want to help you. I want to thank you for helping me down the mountain. Because you see, part of the, one of the activities we participated in was a hike up a mountain. And I'm really kind of afraid of heights, especially when there's no barriers around. Today we went up the tramway and it was okay because I could hold on to the fence. <laughs> but when you're, when you're climbing a mountain, there's no fence to hold on to. So we got about halfway up and we stopped and everybody's looking around going, man, this is fantastic. And I'm thinking, too high, too far. This is not it for me. And so after the break, the other guys start going up. I'm looking terrified, and a beautiful thing happened with my dad. He said, I'm going to follow Rick. I'm going to take Rick down. And my adult father led his adult son down the mountain. He didn't ridicule me. He didn't make fun of me. He didn't shame me. My adult father simply said, Rick, come on down this way. Hey, Rick, come on down this way. Hey, Rick, come on down this way. And in my blindness, I didn't see that. But when I removed the octopus, I could see that. And I wrote that in a letter. I said, Dad, thanks for helping me down the mountain. And I walked up and put them into the post office. I said, here are the observable actions. We're doing things that are healthy. We're doing things that are esteemable. We're doing, we're doing right stuff now. And unless he dies in the next few days, he's going to get this. And he got it. And he called me one afternoon. It was in the summer. I was on holidays. And my father was crying. And he said, son, I got your letter. And he said, Rick, I want to tell you it's the most beautiful thing I've ever received in my life. He said, it's a real keeper. He said, whenever I feel down, he said, I'm going to take it out and read it because this one is forever. He said, I love you, son. I said, Dad, I love you too. And that's where our recovery can bring us. And my dad is so proud of that letter that he now keeps it in the photograph album of the trip. And everybody who comes to his house gets to look at the photograph album and read my letter. <laughs> And you know what that letter said? My father, you know why he does that? Because he's saying to you, hey, my son loves me. Because my dear friends, my father is an alcoholic. He is not a bad man. My father has a disease. He is not a disgrace. And after eight years of drinking, two weeks ago on Thursday, I went to an AA meeting and watched my 76-year-old father get his second first year coin. And you know what's beautiful about that is that my life was great, whether he was drinking or not. I was just purely happy that someone I love is now involved in health, not in sickness. And we can now start, and it started already. He wanted to come and see me this weekend. Hey, I said, I'm going to be in New Mexico. He said, what? He said, yeah, I'm talking to him. He said, Rick, that's great. How fantastic is that? And my dad, I think, has a powerful message to share to alcoholics because he was sober for 24 years, drank for eight, and he's back. And when he got that coin, he was humble. He said, I never thought I'd make it. He said, I, he said, I never thought I'd get back. And for years, I'd go out and talk like this, and at the end of my talk, I'd say, if you believe in prayer, the power of prayer for other people, and you, find it, and you can find it in your heart to say a prayer for Don, would you do that? And all I know is that I said that, People said they would pray, and my father picked up a coin two weeks ago, and I am grateful for that. There is a picture painting 
that stands on an altar in a side chapel at St. Paul's Cathedral in London, England. It's a picture of a traditional robed figure with its right hand raised, knocking on the door of a thatched cottage. Its left hand is holding a lantern. In the top of the painting, it says, The Light of the World. Below it, it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and have supper with him and he with me. And as every one of us knows that the door has no, there is no doorknob on the outside because God is knocking. He is knocking and he is knocking, but he will never barge in. And until I admit that I am powerless, the door stays shut. But as soon as I admit that, when I cross that bridge, that door opens and the power comes in. And the access to the power happens through action. And the actions are called the 12 steps. And what my sponsor said to me, and I've never forgotten it, she said, Rick, you do not think your way into right action. You act your way into right thinking. And the actions you take are called the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. God bless you all.